So Proverbs 25, if you'd like to turn there. These also are the Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, transcribed. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings is to search out a matter. As the heavens for height and the earth for depth, so the heart of kings is unsearchable. Take away the dross from the silver, and there comes out a vessel for the smith. Take away the wicked before the king, and his throne will be established in righteousness. Do not claim honor in the presence of the king, and do not stand in the place of great men. For it is better that it be said to you, come up here, than for you to be placed lower in the presence of the prince. Our king is coming. And he'll establish his throne in righteousness, as we talked about, even as the wicked are taken away. But, before Jesus sets foot on the earth again, and by the way, if you wonder, where do you get that, that he's actually going to set foot on the earth? Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4. He will set foot on the Mount of Olives. Acts chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. As the apostles are standing there looking up at Jesus, the angels say, what are you looking up at Jesus for? He's going to come back the same way that he went up. To the same place. They were on the Mount of Olives right at that time. The Bible is specific about the return of Jesus to the earth, but before Jesus comes and takes away the wicked, we will be taken up. There are two different events that the Bible talks about that all have to do with the second coming of Christ. A taking up first. A tribulation, a pouring out of wrath, a wiping out of wickedness across seven years. And then at the end of that, King Jesus returns to establish His throne. We will be taken up. As Paul says, to meet Him in the clouds, and so we will always be with the Lord, 1 Thessalonians 4.17. And so Paul instructs in Scripture, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Amen. I mean, how explicit can you get? He rescues us from the wrath to come. 1 Thessalonians 5.9, he repeats himself, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Good news! Jesus said in Luke 21.36, Keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. It's not rocket science, it's rapture readiness. That's what we're talking about. I have a sunroof in our in our Kia Soul, and I'm so excited because finally I'm rapture ready. <laughs> you know, I'm driving around all summer with that thing open, just you know, because I, I don't want to hit the roof on the way up. <laughs> it's interesting to me that the Greek word for church used throughout the New Testament, the Greek word, some of you Bible students know it, it's ekklesia. Ekklesia literally means called out, the called out. And that's just what we will be. We will be called out of the world. But before we're called out of the world, and what we're going to talk about tonight and really think through in these two chapters, is that we are called out in the world. We will be called out of the world, but right now we are called out in the world. We should be different. We should be awed by all the world's standards. People should look at your life and mine and say, huh, that's weird. 
That's peculiar. A peculiar people. That's what we should be. Joyful in circumstances where there should be no joy. And wise where there doesn't seem to be any wisdom. And faithful even when the entire world's going the opposite direction. We should be different. We are called out in this world. The called out. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 1 says, Does not wisdom call and understanding lift up her voice? Proverbs chapter 9, verse 3, She has sent out her maidens. She calls from the tops of the heights of the city. Whoever is naive, let him turn in here. To him who lacks understanding, she says, Come, eat of my food and drink of the wine I have mixed. Wait a minute, Rick, you said two Sundays ago the whole drinking wine thing we shouldn't. Hey, it is fine to drink the wine mixed by wisdom. It's a different kind of wine. The wine of wisdom. What wisdom brings to the table is not going to leave you in a stupor. It's going to brighten and clear your thoughts. The wine I have mixed, wisdom calls. Forsake your folly and live and proceed in the way of understanding. So wisdom is calling out to the called out that we might live called out in this world. Now, the next proverb in this chapter actually probably begins with this last line of verse 7. The way it's translated is a little odd. In fact, I don't know if you noticed this Sunday. If you read verse 7, it's better that it be said to you, come up here than for you to be placed lower in the presence of the prince whom your eyes have seen. I've read that. That's just a little odd. You know... It's just maybe, maybe it's just Hebrew wording, but what does that mean? And I, and I searched and looked to try and find what it meant. Well, it's very likely that whom your eyes have seen actually starts the next sentence. Something to understand in Hebrew is ancient Hebrew, no punctuation. So as the translators translate, there are not periods or exclamation points or dashes or commas or things that would lead us into the flow. So you kind of have to read it. Sometimes you'll notice in Bibles that a sentence will be placed up in one verse instead of the next verse, or different translations will kind of place a sentence differently. It's not going to affect your salvation. It doesn't affect the accuracy of the Scripture. But it does make you pause for a moment to say, okay, where does that belong? I believe it belongs in verse 8. Whom your eyes have seen. Literally in the Hebrew there, it's slightly different. It's seen with your eyes. The Hebrew for that line that is translated, whom your eyes have seen, is seen with your eyes. Seen with your eyes. You can either assume a whom at the beginning of it, or you can assume a what at the beginning of it. This is the way I believe it's supposed to read, going on into verse 8. It should read, What you have seen with your eyes, do not go out hastily to argue. So the next proverb, What you have seen with your eyes, do not go out hastily to argue. You'll notice your case is in parentheses there because that's not even in the original language. So it puts together a sentence that makes more sense and actually fits now the flow of these next three verses. We now are in the courtroom. What you've seen with your eyes, do not go out hastily to argue. Otherwise, what you will do, what will you do in the end when your neighbor humiliates you? <laughs> when you're wrong. When you've got it wrong, wisdom counsels against rushing headlong to conclusions. Even to things you think you've seen. You're not sure. You think you saw it. You're pretty sure that's what was going on. Don't rush in. 
Don't be hasty. Slow down. Pause for a moment. Think through what you're doing. Your eyes can play tricks on you. Verse 9, he says, Argue your case with your neighbor. And do not reveal the secret of another. Or he who hears it will reproach you, and the evil report about you will not pass away. Again, we are in the courtroom. Suddenly, here we are. But it's not the court of public opinion. And it's not the court of legal justice. The proverb calls us to the court of human personal relationships. If you were to boil down verses 7, 8, 9, and well, 8, 9, and 10 here, put these verses together, in essence, what's being said here is if you have a problem with your neighbor, take it to them. Now, does that sound like familiar biblical teaching? It's the wisdom of Christ. You have an issue with someone, you take it to that person. You don't rush to judgment. You don't rush to a lawyer. You don't rush to another Christian to pray about it together. You go to the person that you're concerned about. The person you think you saw doing something. You're not sure. The person who perhaps has wronged you in some way or another. You go to them. Jesus said in Matthew 18, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. If he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you. Oh, good, so then we can gang up. No. The one or two more you take with you have to be witnesses. If they haven't seen it, you don't have a case. You take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses then even to listen to the church, let him to be, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. There is a process. We jump directly to Gentile. You know, and Jesus says, whoa, go to the person. I would imagine some 95% of all human relationship problems would be solved if we would go directly to the person first and try to work things out. Seek to understand where they're coming from. But there's courtroom talk here. Argue your case, he says, verse 9. Argue your case to your neighbor. And since he's dealing with the courtroom, let's deal with the courtroom. Keep your finger there and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This is tough stuff. So let's see where it takes us. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1. He says, Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? There's one to chew on and think about. What does that mean, Rick? It means that we will judge angels. Pretty straightforward there. Where were you when I stubbed my toe that afternoon? He says, if we're going to... What? Were there witnesses? Uh, please, hold the questions till after. <laughs> How much more the matters of this life? Verse 4. So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? Now he's not downplaying, he's not throwing out negatives on the secular world. He's just saying, why? Why would you, when you have brothers and sisters in Christ, when you've got the wisdom of Christ, why would you go somewhere else first? Why would you not deal with it within the body? 
or within the church. He goes on, verse 5, I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? Can't you find somebody in Christ to help you work out the problem that you're going to court about? But brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. Now he's saying this to the shame of the church of Corinth. He's saying you're, you're taking each other to court. Well, what's wrong with that, Paul? Go further. Verse 7. Actually then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? (laughs) Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. And you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. What is Paul saying? He's saying the washed, the sanctified, the justified in Jesus should be different. Called out in this world. We should be different. Not like the world. We should be like Christ. Should not the saints, the holy ones, act like saints and holy ones? Shouldn't we be more concerned? Well, let me ask you some questions. Let me ask you three questions here. Three questions to consider when you feel like you've been wronged. And by the way, if you feel like you've been wronged by someone, Paul says, rather than go after them, isn't it better just to be wronged? If you feel like someone's ripped you off, Paul says, isn't it better just to be ripped off? Three questions especially if you're thinking about or considering or you ever face having to seek legal counsel or court where another Christian is involved. That's what we're talking about here, Christian to Christian. Go into court. Three questions. Number one, am I rushing to judgment? Back in Proverbs chapter 25. Am I rushing to judgment? Am I going hastily here? It is not a bad idea to slow up and pray about what you're about to do. Is this a rush to judgment? Secondly, Will my self-defense mar the name of Christ in any way? Or the name of the church? If taking this person to court is going to put a blight on the name of Jesus, I ought not do it. Better to be defrauded. Better to be ripped off. Better to be wronged. Than to put something on the name of Jesus or the church. Question number three. And I think the most important one. Which judge do I most trust to defend my case? A judge of the earth? Or as Abraham called him in Genesis 18.25, the judge of all the earth. Abraham said, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? Would you prefer the judge of all the earth or a judge in the earth? See, the thing that we forget, and it's so, it's so insidious, it happens so quickly because we live so much in our flesh, we forget that God knows what happened. He is aware of the relationship problem. He knows that you were wronged. He knows that you were ripped off. He knows that you were cheated, defrauded, treated wrongly. He knows. So why not go to the Lord and say, Lord, I, 
All this money was ripped off of me. And I, I would like to get it back. And the only way to do it is to take my brother to court because he's not paying. And Paul would say, maybe you should let it go. I'm not telling you what to do here. Paul is. <laughs> There's just something here more important. There's a higher standard here that we can so quickly and easily miss. It's not about my rights. You've given up your rights. When you entered the church, when you, when you gave your life to Jesus, you gave all your rights to Him. And He deals justly. One day we know we're going to say, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God because His judgments are true and righteous. We're going to say that. Revelation 19. So if we know that all of His judgments are true and righteous, we know we're going to say that one day. Should we not then trust the judge of all the earth? We are to be different because wisdom calls us out. Back to Proverbs 25. I like the next two. These are just kind of nice proverbs. You've probably heard these. Like apples of gold in settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. Like an earring of gold, or literally a nose ring. Just thought I'd throw that out. It's actually what it says there. A nose ring of gold. And an ornament of fine gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. Apples of gold and settings of silver. Solomon is describing something here that is probably oranges. We have golden delicious apples. Israel has oranges. And by the way, if you've ever had an orange in Israel, you know they are sweet. They are tasty, and it's very likely the word in the Hebrew here might very well be pointing to oranges rather than apples. Oranges are more plenteous, more common in Israel. By the way, you know Israel is the number three highest exporter and producer of the world's fruit. Number three in the entire world, tiny Israel. God's in that. The word can be good. Or it can be a rebuke, but it's apples of gold. It's like the sweetest of oranges in a nice, beautiful silver bowl served up, ready to eat. The word can be difficult or can be nice. Either way, the issue is not the word. The issue is when it's spoken. It's a word spoken at the right time. In the right place, the right circumstance. If it's a reproof, okay. And if it's taken well, by the way, what verse 12 is saying is it will stay with the person who's rebuked. If they have ears to hear and the rebuke is taken well, it will stay with them like ornamentation, like beautiful gold earrings or a sparkly little nose ring. (laughs) That's what that is talking about there. The wisdom of God consistently calls us to honest, caring relationships. I don't think it's an accident that verses 11 and 12 follow this issue about going to your neighbor if you have a case against them, if you have a problem with them. Why? Because like apples of gold and settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances, in relationship, with love, with concern for the other person. Verse 13. Like the cold of snow in the time of harvest is a faithful messenger to those who send him, for he refreshes the soul of his masters, like the cold of snow. You know, it can get muggy in the upper Galilee. That's where we stayed the last time we visited Israel, the upper Galilee, and it can get a little a little muggy there. We're there in the springtime, so it's real nice, but you get into the summer especially, it can get pretty oppressive. Now one afternoon on our last trip, we on somewhat of a muggy day, if some of you recall this, we rode up to the top of Mount Bintal there in the upper Galilee, 
and it started, it got real cold and foggy and wet and started to snow. And it's actually pretty refreshing. I found out here that something they used to do at harvest time in Israel is send messengers up to pack down snow from Mount Hermon or Mount Vintal or the higher elevations to pack snow down during the time of harvest to refresh the workers. And so this is a real uh, vivid picture here, like the cold of snow in the time of harvest is a faithful messenger to those who send him. He refreshes the soul of his masters. He's refreshing. A faithful messenger brings a refreshing word. Oh, I'm hearing indications of the gospel here. Faithful messengers. Those who bring the word of the gospel of Jesus always bring refreshing with them. Paul said in Romans 10.15, How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. On the other hand, verse 14, Like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of his gifts falsely. Or literally, is a man who boasts in a gift of falsehood. He boasts in a gift of falsehood. It's someone who's delivering a bogus message. Someone who's delivering a false report, a lying report. There's nothing good about it. It's like gray overcast days in mid-July here in Washington. (laughs) You know? (laughs) We've had a couple of those lately where you just, you have no energy. And it's depressing. And that's the picture here of someone who's bringing a false report, a bogus one. It's interesting, this proverb reminds me so vividly, like clouds and wind without rain. Sounds like Jude's warning of false teachers. Jude, in his little letter, describes deceitful delivery boys in the last days. Naysayers, false teachers. He describes them this way, Jude 12, as men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts. When they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars, for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. Now that's vivid teaching, but what's frightening about the false teachers Jude is talking about, and I think possibly indicated here in Proverbs 25, 14, the frightening thing about them is they are not outside the church, they are inside the church. They are hidden reefs in your love feast. What do you mean love feast? Communion. They're taking communion with you. They're right alongside you. They're in the church and you wouldn't think anything of them. They're hidden reefs until you crash on their false teaching. Until what they do, what they say, undermines the truth. They're like hidden reefs. And I don't say that to frighten anybody, but just to say we are called to be discerning, biblically-minded people. Wise with the wisdom of Christ, so that we see these things. We're aware of these things. You might say, well, what hope do we have to get the sweet, refreshing, snow-like message of truth out against such devious Voices, look at verse 15. By forbearance, a ruler may be persuaded, and a soft tongue breaks the bone. I like that. A soft tongue breaks the bone. With forbearance and continual teaching of the word. Patience. Patience. He's not in here right now, so we can talk about Jake for a minute. I'm really enjoying watching him start up in his role as a youth pastor. 
and try and get his feet underneath him and, and figure it all out. And he's, his mind, I, I don't even think I would have the energy to keep up. He is going a million miles a second thinking through all the possibilities and what he needs to do. And he just, it's just kind of nonstop. And, and it'll settle down. It will. Don't go tell him, Pat. It'll settle down. <laughs> For him, but he's just, you know, it, it's all going on, and we were talking about this today. And he was saying, Yeah, what about this? I need to take care of that. What about this? And I said, Jake, you're one week in, man. One week. Give it a year. A year? Give it two years. You know, that was something I learned as a youth pastor. You don't build a youth ministry overnight. If you do, if it's a big flash in the pan, it's going to fall apart. Take your time. Get to know the kids. Love on them, which, by the way, he's doing a great job. Teach them. Walk with them. Patience, forbearance. Just keep bringing the message. Keep bringing the message. Don't give up. The message of the gospel of our salvation gain, it is our lifetime message. It's not just a message for tonight. It's not just, oh, a good one for Sunday, or perhaps a single conversation you may have coming up. It is every day of your life, and it is for your entire life. Walk it out patiently. That's how you overcome the hidden reefs. You keep sailing. You keep teaching. I think of Paul standing there toward the end of his life before King Agrippa. He was at Caesarea Maritima there on the coast of Israel in front of a a great crowd of elites there in the amphitheater. You can see the amphitheater. It's one of the first stops on the tour. Big amphitheater with the Mediterranean Sea out in front of you. They actually have concerts. Madonna performed there. Acts 25-23 tells us King Agrippa came together with Bernice among great pomp and entered the auditorium, accompanied by the commanders and the prominent men of the city, at the command of Festus, I like to call him Uncle Festus, and Paul was brought in. So there they are in this place, and all the rich people and all the wealthy and all the well-to-dos and all the upper class and upper crust, they're all there, and they want to see who this guy Paul is. There's like a show for them. They bring him out, and he's probably manacled. Hands, feet, comes out before them in front of this huge amphitheater filled with all these dignitaries. And he begins, Paul begins to give this incredible testimony. In Acts 26, Agrippa said to Paul, You are permitted to speak for yourself. And Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded to make his defense. Which, Lord willing, we'll read together in Israel next March, if you go on the trip. But in that same amphitheater, Paul gives this marvelous defense of his faith. He witnesses about everything that happened to him, how he became a believer in Jesus. And then, in Acts 26-27, he says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. Paul could be persuasive. And Agrippa replied to Paul, in a short time you will persuade me to become a Christian? It may have been a question. It may have been an assertion that, wow, if I listen to much more of this, I'm going to start believing what this guy's teaching, you know. And there's a good chance people laughed at that. Because <laughs> he is pretty persuasive. Even kings, even kings, by forbearance, a ruler may be persuaded. And he says, Paul, you, you almost persuade me. And Paul said, oh, I would wish to God that whether in a short or long time, not only you, but also all who hear me today might become such as I am, except for these chains. <laughs> a little humor from Paul. And that's the deal. Whether it happens immediately or it takes an entire lifetime of sharing the gospel, you keep sharing. Forbearance. Forbearance and patience. You keep bringing the word. You might not think anyone's listening. Keep bringing the word of God. Patience. Forbearance. 
I wonder, could Paul possibly have known, could he have foreseen the impact that he was going to have on this world? How many people were going to read his writings? That his letters to these churches of instruction, instruction he got directly from Jesus, would be part of Scripture. Could he possibly have known that his forbearance in the short life that he lived would go across 2,000 years? You hang in there. You keep teaching. You stay with it. We are to be different. Wisdom calls us out. Verse 16. Have you found honey? Yes. Eat only what you need that you not have it in excess and vomit it. I think that's good advice. You probably know I love honey. I am a honey buff. I'll put honey on just about anything. And it's an interesting substance in the Scripture. Honey is. It's that evidence of the sweetness of the promised land. The land flowing with milk and honey. Honey itself is used to describe uh, the Word of God. That it's like sweeter than honey. It's sweeter than the honeycomb. But what's interesting is when it came to sacrifice, the Lord said, don't use it. When it comes to the sacrifices, God said, I, don't put any honey in there. Why not, Lord? It describes your word. Wouldn't that be a cool thing to add? You know, you want a little sweetness on the, on the grain offering, God? It, it, it pictures the promised land. Why not, Lord? Add a little honey. Leviticus chapter 2, verse 11. God said, no grain offering which you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven. For you shall not offer up in smoke any leaven, nor any honey as an offering by fire to the Lord. Why not? Why not add the honey? Why not sweeten up the grain offering? What's the deal? Why does God single out honey in this instance and say, don't use it? You know, honey is naturally sweet. And it's one of nature's sweeteners. You know, it's nature's sugar. And though it's naturally sweet, when honey is, when it's subjected to intense heat, it breaks down. And there's a spiritual truth here. We are not to rely on our own natural sweetness because it'll break down. When you're under intense heat, when you are under pressure, your own natural abilities, your natural talent, your natural sweetness, what naturally comes from you will break down. If I rely on my own ability to handle the tough times, when I come under fire... I'm going to break down. Jesus went through intense heat in in the Garden of Gethsemane. But Luke tells us, a fascinating verse, Luke 22.43, that as He came out, He had been strengthened. Now, if you and I went through what Jesus went through in Gethsemane, not to mention the rest of the night leading up to the cross, but Gethsemane alone, where Luke tells us He sweat drops of blood, to sweat drops of blood, hematidrosis, would be the closest thing. In fact, usually if it happens, you're under so much intense stress that you die. Jesus was right on the edge of death, completely wiped out, completely mourning, coming to that intense moment, and yet he says, the Bible says he was strengthened as he came out of the garden. Really? Why? Because Jesus wasn't relying on the honey of natural life. He was relying on the fruit of the Spirit. And if you want to bear up under hard times, difficult times, you need the fruit of the Spirit. Jesus was never compared to honey. But, 1 Corinthians 15.20, He was called the first fruits of those who are asleep. The fruit. 
If you want something that will strengthen you in heated difficulties and hardships, I suggest to you the fruit of the Spirit is lasting. It's solid. It's substantial. And about that fruit, Paul said, against such things, there is no law. Verse 17. Let your foot rarely be in your neighbor's house, or he will become weary of you and hate you. I think I may make a great welcome mat. You know? Right there on your mat. Bottom line, with this verse and the one before us, too much of a good thing is not a good thing. Just as too much honey can cause you to have the you know, urge to regurge, so you can wear out your welcome to a neighbor or a friend. You're not as sweet as you think you are, I think is what that says. Verse 18, like a club and a sword and a sharp arrow is a man who bears false witness against his neighbor. Like a bad tooth and an unsteady foot is confidence in a faithless man in time of trouble. Like one who takes off a garment on a cold day, like vinegar on soda, (laughs) is he who sings songs to a troubled heart. In these three verses, we have three graphic illustrations of words badly used. The first illustration is of the false witness in verse 18. The false witness, which could be the gossip, the slanderer, the one who lies, the one who deceives, the false witness. His words are compared to clubs, swords, and sharp arrows. Now check this out. One scholar wrote, Would you shrink with horror at the thought of beating out your neighbor's brains with a hammer? Or of killing a person by hand with a sword or a sharp arrow? Why then do you seek to destroy another's reputation and mangle their character? You see, not not that commentator, but the Bible compares the words of a false witness to a club that bashes someone over the head. Or a sword that runs a person through, or a sharp arrow that kills them on the battlefield. That's what the words of a false witness do. Verse 19, the picture there is of a faithless friend who turns on you in times of trouble. A faithless friend is like a bad tooth and an unsteady foot or a slippery footing. A faithless friend, kind of like Judas. Judas was a bad tooth. Judas was a slipping foot to Jesus. Remember the Last Supper? Jesus dipped the morsel. And he told the apostles there in John 13, he dipped the morsel and he said, the one to whom I give the morsel, he's the one who will betray me. And he dipped the morsel and he handed it to Judas. <laughs> now I've always read that to think, wow, the, must, the rest of the apostles must have been going, did you see that? He's the one. The Bible tells us they didn't know. How did they miss it? Because when you dip the morsel at that moment in the Passover meal and hand it to someone, you are handing it to your closest friend. It was a sign of honor. And in that moment, it's as though Jesus was saying, Judas, you have a choice. You know, you, you can be my friend. Will you be my faithful friend? The Bible tells us after the morsel, John thirteen twenty seven, that Judas then entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Now, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he said this to him. For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying, buy the things we have need of for the feast, or else that he should go give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and John adds, and it was night. The morsel was a morsel for a friend. 
Judas is the picture of the faithless friend. Verse 20 gives us a picture here of the unfeeling fool. The unfeeling fool who has no sense of compassion or or empathy. I mean, what does it mean here? If you're careless and carefree with someone else's feelings, you're going to get a negative reaction. That's what this is talking about. Like one who takes off a garment on a cold day. (laughs) You get a shiver. It's just out of place. Put the jacket back on. What are you doing? Or, like vinegar on soda. What in the world is that talking about? Is it like a Coke? What, what does this mean? Vinegar on soda. The soda here referred to a, a mineral soda found in the Mideast. It's called natron. And natron, was, it was used for soap. It was used for different reasons. But vinegar, if you pour vinegar on it, it made it fizz and foam. And it would get a reaction from it. Both of these things are speaking of a negative reaction. And so, like one who takes off a garment on a cold day of vinegar on soda, is he who sings songs to a troubled heart. It's just someone who's being uncaring, unfeeling, not paying attention to the pain a friend or a brother or a sister is really in, just singing songs away, trying to lighten the room, maybe by telling a joke because you're uncomfortable, instead of being with the person in their pain. It's like the Babylonians calling out to the captives from Judah. Psalm 137, verse 1, By the rivers of Babylon we sat and we wept. We remembered Zion upon the willows in the midst of it. We hung our harps. For there our captors demanded of us songs. And our tormentors mirth saying, Sing one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? And the proverb writer here, Solomon, is saying, The unfeeling fool is someone who's calling for song in a time of pain. Paul writes in Romans 12.15, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. All three of these proverbs indicate foolish behavior. The false witness, faithless friend, the unfeeling fool. Wise behavior is different. Remember, we are to be different. We are the called out. Wisdom calls us out. Verse 21. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Alright. Heaping burning coals. (laughs) That's what what I want to do. You recognize that one? Paul quotes it in Romans 12.20. And then he goes on to say in Romans 12.21, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Burning coals on his head. Hmm. So if I really want to get back at someone, you know, and I treat them nicely and it makes them feel bad, (laughs) that's that's not what he's saying. This whole idea of heaping burning coals, Paul uses, it's used here. The picture is how they would keep fire going. And if you were a a lady in one house, a woman of the house, and, and your fire was getting low, and you had a friend next door, you could go over to their house and borrow burning coals. But here's the deal, they would carry it on their heads. They'd have a basin or a bowl. They'd carry on their heads and they'd go to the neighbor's house and they'd scoop up some of the coal and put it in the bowl on their head, take it back, and then they would have a fire. It's not about bashing someone. It's not about burning someone. It's about warmth. It's about really caring for someone. And all this time, I used to think, you know, Paul was talking about, yeah, really getting back at someone. No, he's talking about loving them, about caring for them, even your enemy. Showing them the love of Jesus. Why? Because wisdom calls us out. Because we are to be different. Verse 23, the north wind brings forth rain. 
and a backbiting tongue and angry countenance. It is better to live in a corner of the roof than in a house shared with a contentious woman. And so he's repeating this one. We've seen this proverb before. He couples it with a proverb against against secrecy. The backbiting tongue is literally a tongue of secrecy. It's a gossip. Stealth gossip, you might call it. And what he's saying here, gossip and contention, they go hand in hand. And we are to have none of it. A contentious spirit, a gossip. We're not supposed to be that way. More on that in a minute. Verse 25. Like cold water to a weary soul, so is good news from a distant land. I like that. You hold in your hands good news from a distant land. I mean, stop and think about that for a moment. We are reading a book that was written entirely on three other continents. A book that was written over 1,600 years a book that was penned by 40 different writers. And here we sit in a barn on a Wednesday night, 2011, and it's relevant to us. Isn't that amazing? This is good news from a distant land, and yet it hits us right where we're at today. And that's what the Word of God does. That's why no book even compares. Because this one meets us right here. We read the proverb before, bright eyes gladden the heart, Proverb 15.30. And good news puts fat on the bones. And that kind of calories, I don't mind at all. This is a good word, good news from a distant land. Verse 26, like a trampled spring and a polluted or ruined well is a righteous man who gives way before the wicked. James said it this way, James 4.17 to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it to him in his sin. All it takes for evil to triumph is for righteous people to do nothing. When you know the right thing, but you pass on it and allow the wicked to surge forward, James says, you've just sinned. Do what's right. Don't just think about it. Act on what is right. Because when we don't, you know what happens? It pollutes our righteousness. It makes our righteousness hard to swallow, undrinkable by other people. I got an email today. I won't say who it was from, but dealing with the, the discussion we had on drinking a couple weeks ago. And this person was saying that, uh, and I love the way the email is written because she said, I have a Christian friend and a non-Christian friend, so I'm just going to call the Christian friend C and the non-Christian friend NC. Okay? And I was talking to C. And C said that she was on the phone talking to NC, the non-Christian friend, and the non-Christian found out uh, or, or thought that she didn't drink. But she, of course, the next time they went out together, had a glass of wine to show her non-Christian friend that she was cool with it, that, that she could drink too. And her non-Christian friend commented on the fact that it was cool that she as a Christian could drink just like the non-Christian. Are you following me here? Something's wrong with that. When we are trying to be like the world in our example... We're missing the point. We should be different. It pollutes our righteousness. When we don't look any different, it pollutes our righteousness. Because when the time comes where you say, you know, biblically speaking, that's probably not the best direction to go, the non-Christian will look at you and say, yeah, but, but you do this. But you do that. But you're no different than me in this area. How come you're different here? Our righteousness is polluted. Verse 27. 
It is not good to eat much honey or too much honey, nor is it glory to search out one's glory. Again, too much of a good thing. Don't go looking for your natural glory. Don't search out your glory. Something that's going to make you look good. Jesus said, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's what I love about Jesus. We've talked about this before. Jesus had a way of acting and doing that always brought the glory to God. Always. I mean, check it out. How many times did Jesus perform a miracle? The Bible goes on to tell us that the people glorified their Father in heaven. Because Jesus knew how to do this. And He calls us to be the same. Like a city, verse 28, that is broken into and without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. Well said. Listen to me for a minute. Well, I hope you've been listening to me, but but really listen right now. (laughs) A man who has no control over his spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, we're told, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. What's the last one? Self-control. Which means, hear me on this, if you have the Holy Spirit working in your life, you have self-control. And there are Christian groups who say otherwise. There are Christian groups who say, no, the Holy Spirit came upon me and I was shuddering on the floor and could not control myself. That runs counter to what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit. What we're told right here in the proverb, a city that's broken into without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. The Holy Spirit does come upon you, but when the Holy Spirit comes upon a person or empowers a person, the one thing He does not do is take away their self-control. No, He increases their self-control. It's one of the fruits that He provides in His many services. As He gifts you, He strengthens your ability to walk with that gift in control of that very gift. But someone who says, Ah, the Holy Spirit takes over and I can't control what I say or what I do or even when I say it or when I do it. No, no. That's not true. Not according to this Word. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14.32, The spirits of prophets are subject to the prophets. You have control. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. And I shared last week, I shared last week with with the gentleman that, you know, I I appreciate you wanting to make comments, but I don't believe the Holy Spirit's going to interrupt himself. So let the Word of God be taught, and then let's talk about it. You have control. I absolutely believe in the spiritual gifts, every one of them, Pastor, every one of them. I believe are active and at work in the world today and the Spirit gives to those as He wills. But I also believe that along with all the spiritual gifts as they are given comes self-control. We are to be different than the world. There are some religious systems out there. Many cults perpetuate a lack of self-control. But the Holy Spirit of the living God does not. Wisdom, gang, wisdom calls us out. Now, Chapter 26, we're actually going to move through pretty quickly. It breaks down into four sections. Four negative character sketches or studies. Verses 1 through 12, picture the fool. Verses 13 through 16, the sluggard. Verses 17 through 22, the contentious. Long about verse 22 or 23 in there. And then the rest of the chapter portrays the hateful. Follow me through with this. Or follow this through with me. Yeah. Case study number one, the fool. Verse one. 
like snow in summer and like rain in harvest, so honor is not fitting for a fool. Skip over to verse 8. Like one who binds a stone in a sling, so is he who gives honor to a fool. It's dangerous. That thing's going to go off. (laughs) You don't honor a fool. It's dangerous even to honor a fool. Why? We'll see why in just a moment. Verse 2. Like a sparrow in its flitting, like a swallow in its flying, so a curse without cause does not alight. I really like this one. It's in the context of foolishness and the fool. But this proverb describes the action of a fool trying to rain down curses on someone to whom they do not apply. Someone that they who don't deserve them, literally. And it won't work. It won't work. And we have a biblical example of it. Balaam tried it. Balaam tried to curse Israel. All the way back in Numbers chapter 23 and 24, Balaam was hired by Balak to get up on a high mountain above Israel, camped out below, and to curse them. So Balaam, this oracle, this, this seedy prophet, gets up there, and he opens his mouth to curse four different times. And every single time as he gets ready to curse, nothing but blessing comes out on Israel. It's an awesome story. I'm going, oh, bless you, 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 bless you. <laughs> it's just amazing. And he stops and Balak comes up and says, what are you doing? I hired you to curse him. Oh yeah, <clears throat> let, me, let me reset here. Okay, alright, let me try again. And blessing, 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 blessing. Four times. It's, it's just marvelous. And in the last two times, he inadvertently prophesies of the coming Messiah of those people. It's amazing. Numbers 29, or 24, verse 9. Speaking of Jesus, Balaam says, He couches down. He lies down as a lion. As a lion, who dares rouse him? Blessed is everyone who blesses you, and cursed is everyone who curses you. O Israel, you are to be blessed. And He is coming, this one who couches like a lion. Who? The lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus. Numbers 24, 17. Balaam says, I see Him, but... But not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel and shall crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons of Sheth. Speaking of Jesus, he just blesses. You can't curse someone who doesn't deserve it, is what the proverb says. And it's foolish to try to do so. A curse without cause does not take hold. And by the way, anyone in the world today trying to curse Israel is going to be in trouble. You do not want to curse God's people. It never goes right. Verse 3. Back to the fool. A whip is for the horse, a bridle for the donkey, and a rod for the back of fools. I like that one. (laughs) Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will also be like him. Answer a fool as his folly deserves, that he not be wise in his own eyes. You know, they say there's no such thing as a stupid question. I disagree. There are plenty of stupid questions. My uh, kids were down this last year, uh, homeschooling, and spent a lot of that time down at the dailies, the daily school for remedial learning. No, for, for good learning. And, uh, and it was good stuff. But Hayden came home one day. I just love this. Monica, I love you for this. Hayden comes home and he goes, Dad, Miss Monica won't talk to me. 
And I said, well, that's a characteristic. Um, what are you talking about? He goes, well, it's just, I, I ask her questions, it just walks away. I said, what? Yeah, she just won't answer my questions. I said, what, what kind of questions are you asking? Well, you know, good, good questions. Monica has a policy and a very good one. If she's already answered the question, she doesn't continue answering. Now, for Hayden, who likes to ask questions in a multiple multiplicity of ways, this was this was just a whole new thing, and we have adopted this at home. You know, I'll just walk away, and and I sometimes under his breath, I've actually heard Hayden saying, "Monica." <laughs> It's perfect. It's great. There are there are stupid questions, gang. And verses 4 and 5, they go together like bookends. I really like these two because verse 4 says, ignore foolishness. You know, questions without answer. Statements that are just made stupidly. Did Adam have a belly button? Can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? I mean, just that, that's a stupid question. Question designed just to try and undermine the truth. And verse 4 says, you ignore those. You don't even give them the time of day. You do not answer. But verse 5 says differently, answer a fool as his folly deserves, that he not be wise in his own eyes. So verse 5 is saying, you do correct foolishness that the fool might avoid arrogance. When a fool is starting to get puffed up and think that they've got the right answer and you know it's not, that's when you answer them. Now continue on. Verse 6. He cuts off his own feet and drinks violence who sends a message by the hand of a fool. These are great. Verse 10. Skip down. Like an archer who wounds everyone, so is he who hires a fool or who hires those who pass by. In other words, someone you don't even know what they're going to do with the message you have. I'm talking about loose cannons here. They'll just go off. Talking about a lack of discernment when interacting with someone you know to be foolish. Verse 7. Like the legs which are useless to the lame, so is a proverb in the mouth of fools. Why? Because they don't get it. It's not getting in. You know what I mean? It's, just, it's going off the top of their head. It's not getting in to the brain and into the heart. It's not making its way down in there. Skip to verse 9. Along with that, like a thorn which falls into or literally goes up into the hand of a drunkard, so is a proverb in the mouth of fools. Because he doesn't know how to handle wisdom. At best, the fool is going to use it lamely. At worst, someone's going to get hurt by his mishandling of the truth. Verse, where are we? We're jumping around. 11. One of my favorites. Like a dog that returns to its vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, applies this proverb to the most foolish thing a believer in Jesus can do. And we're talking about a believer here. Listen to this. 1 Peter 2, verse 24. If they, after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, if they are entangled again in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For Peter writes, it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the commandment handed on to them. 
It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. This is someone who professed belief at one time, but now has rejected the very belief they professed. Wait a minute, Rick. What about once saved, always saved? Listen, Peter came along a long time, centuries before the silly debate over that one. And i got to tell you, that the debate over once saved, always saved, how do I know if I'm saved, all this stuff, it, it does become silly. Because if you love Jesus, it doesn't matter. And if you don't love Jesus, you're not going to care if you're saved or not. The bottom line is, do you love Him? Well, yeah, I love Him. Then you're all right. Yeah, but can I lose that? Do you want to? Why, why are we discussing this? I'm afraid of losing my salvation. Well, do you love Jesus? Yes? Okay. What are you afraid of? That's the thing. But the bottom line is that it is utterly foolish to know the truth of Jesus and to turn away. And people do it all the time. I'm not talking about saved believers in Christ. I'm talking about people who hear the truth, they know it's true, they sit there and they go, that's, yeah, 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 that's probably true. I don't want it, but it's probably true. It's utter foolishness. Now I said we'd uh, see why it's dangerous to honor a fool. Here's why, verse 12. Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. You want to know what the Bible says is worse than foolishness? Arrogance. It is more foolish to be arrogant than it is to be a fool. Why? Because even a simpleton, even the village idiot, can see when he has a need for a Savior. Even someone who's not the brightest bulb in the pack can see a need for a Savior. But when we get arrogant, we start to think, I'm good enough. I can do this on my own. I don't really need Jesus. It's arrogance. And those who are wise in their own eyes see no need for a Savior. The Bible defines it as an atheist. Because the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And it's the height of arrogance and it's utter foolishness. It's the humble who say, Jesus, I can't live without you. Jesus, I don't want to be without you. Romans 12.16, Paul says, Be of this mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. If there is any wisdom in you, any wisdom in me, it is the wisdom of Christ Jesus. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for giving me the wisdom that I have. I know it comes from you. And I know it don't come from me. So case study number one is the fool. Case study number two is the sluggard. The sluggard. Verse 13, the sluggard says, there's a lion in the road. A lion is in the open square. As the door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. (laughs) The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. He's wary of bringing it to his mouth again. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can give a discreet answer. Now these verses we're going to come back to and and deal with on Sunday. Honestly, I was too lazy to study these out for tonight. (laughs) Case study number three. (laughs) Case study number three, the contentious. The contentious, verse 17. Like one who takes a dog by the ears is he who passes by and meddles with strife not belonging to him. Do you notice that these Proverbs in this section discovered by Hezekiah's men are pretty funny? 
There's a lot of humor in these. In fact, you will notice there's more humor going from chapter 25 to the end than the preceding chapters. Why is that? Okay, this is just my ruminating. This is just Rick thinking, okay? I don't have anything to back this up. It's just my observation that if 1 through 24, those first 24 chapters, are Solomon's first edition, and we know they are, he wrote those, he wrote up the scroll, here are my Proverbs. But all these others were left out. Perhaps it's because Solomon thought they're too funny. They're not serious enough. And I want to be taken seriously as a wise man. So I'm going to present these Proverbs to the world. And the Lord says, oh, but I like that one. (laughs) And that one's good. And don't miss that I gave you that one. You know, the honey vomit thing, that's funny. And so these get added back in. Why? Because the Lord's saying, look, look, humor's a good thing. There is humor in wisdom and wisdom in humor. That's cool. It's part of what God has given us. And we as a people of God who are called out in this world should laugh a lot. Should be a joyful people. And so it's just interesting to me. Solomon said, no, we're going to set those aside. We'll just have these. These Proverbs. And God says, yeah, these are, these are great. So the contentious, like one who takes a dog by the ears. Get the picture. You're grab- and this is a wild dog. One of the wild dogs of Israel. Roaming free and you grab him by the ears. What's he going to do? He's going to go nuts. Holding a dog. But, you know, and he's trying to bite and get out of control. He says, you're like that. If you pass by and you meddle with strife that doesn't belong to you. Like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death. So is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, oh, Was I not joking? I was just kidding. Man, don't get so uptight. Just playing around. For lack of wood, the fire goes out. And where there is no whisperer or gossip, contention quiets down. Like charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a contentious man to kindle strife. The words of a whisperer are like dainty morsels they go down into the innermost parts of the body. The contentious. This is the person who likes to stir it up. It's Jerry Seinfeld. If you ever watch the show, that's his role in the whole thing. He's always stirring it up. He's always messing with things, and then he just sits back and smiles and watches it happen. It's very funny. But this is a problem. Every time there's a problem in the church fellowship, this person seems to somehow be involved. And over and over, I'm not talking about anybody in particular, by the way, but they show up because they're the ones that when there's strife, somehow they're there. Often they're trying to act like they're making it better. Often they're the ones calling around going, we've got to fix this, we've got to fix this. But they're getting a thrill and a jolly out of stirring it up. The contentious man, the contentious woman. And verse 17 gives a, a telling word here. The word meddling there in verse 17. He who passes by, he meddles with strife not belonging to him. He sticks his nose in where it doesn't belong. That word meddling is abar in the Hebrew. It means transgress. To cross over into an area that you ought not go. So let's call it like it is. Stirring up strife is sin. Plain and simple. The contentious man is not pleasing to the Lord. And by the way, this is part of a gradual problem that is ongoing in this chapter. As we come to case study number four, the hateful. Verse 23. Like an earthen vessel 
overlaid with silver dross are burning lips and a wicked heart. What's that mean? It means it may appear shiny. The person may appear glazed and, and clean. But their substance underneath that glaze is earthy. It's of the earth. By contrast, we are not overlaid with a false covering. We're not overlaid with sheen. No, we are earthen vessels, Paul says. But we're not shiny in and of ourselves. It's not what we put on the outside that makes us presentable for Jesus. It's what comes out of the inside. It's the fact that we have this treasure, Paul says, 2 Corinthians 4, 7, in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. You see, when the power of God shines from from inside of me, inside out, people say, wow, I see Jesus in you. When I try to make it all glossy on the outside, dress it up, people see religion on me. And the hateful, spiteful person is trying to hide what they really are, trying to hide the fact that they are flesh and blood. You know what? I don't hide it. I am a sinner. I am flesh and blood. I am carnal. I do foolish things. I desperately need a Savior as much as anybody in this barn. Don't misunderstand. Don't think because I sit up here and hold a Bible in my lap and teach that I need Jesus any less. I am an earthen vessel. There is no sheen on me. If there's anything good that comes out, it's the glory of Jesus. It's His wisdom. It's His Word that shines out. And that's how it works with all of us. But the hateful, spiteful person, they gloss over because they got something on the inside that they want to hide. They know their hatefulness isn't going to get them anywhere, so they gloss it over. Verse 24, He who hates disguises it with his lips, but he lays up deceit in his heart. When he speaks graciously, do not believe him, for there are seven abominations in his heart. Seven abominations? What does that mean? It may mean just complete deceit. You know, the number seven, that number of completion, it may mean he just has a completely sick heart. But it also may be a reference here back to an earlier proverb. The heart of a hateful person. Proverbs 6, verse 16 tells us, There are six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven which are an abomination to Him. Haughty eyes, lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. And all of that makes up a hateful heart. Seven abominations. Be careful with the contentious man, because... Hatred is probably seething just beneath the surface. Verse 26, Though his hatred covers itself with guile, his wickedness will be revealed before the assembly. Before the assembly? Judgment day. What is hidden on earth will be revealed. You know, we really have a choice. We can confess our sin to the Lord and be washed and clean and saved. Or we can conceal our sin and it will be revealed on the day of judgment. If I confess my sin, my judgment day is at the cross. If I conceal my sin, my judgment day is coming. And there is a day when it will all be revealed before the assembly. Not for those who have given their hearts to Jesus, but for those who have hidden their hearts from Jesus. Verse 27, He who digs a pit will fall into it. And he who rolls a stone, it will come back on him. Ever feel feel like you've just fallen into a bottomless pit? Maybe you're in a place in life where you're just having trouble getting out. 
You want to turn things around. You want them to be better, but you're in the pit. Listen, wisdom calls us out. Wisdom calls us out. Have you ever rolled a stone over someone's foot? (laughs) Or onto somebody? You've done something that brought harm to someone else. You hurt them. You didn't mean to, perhaps, but, but you did anyway. Listen, the stone has been rolled back. The stone was rolled away. The only way to heal those broken relationships is through Jesus, who said, Luke 20, verse 17, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Verse 28, a lying tongue hates those it crushes, and a flattering mouth works ruin. Now this chapter's negative, you know. We're talking about the fool and we're talking about the sluggard and the contentious and the hateful. But you know as you read through it, I think what's going on here, these are not necessarily four different people. This is the gradual progression of one person. That it begins with foolishness, which leads to laziness, which develops contentiousness that finally produces hatefulness. And we are not to be that way. We're not to be that way. These things spiral downward. And we are to be different. We are the called out. Not foolish, but wise in Christ Jesus. Not lazy, but energized by His Spirit. Not contentious, but peacemakers with the Gospel of Jesus. Not hateful, but loving all people. Because wisdom calls us out in this world. And we are the called out. Are we not? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You again for Your Word. We thank You, Father, for the humor in these Proverbs. Father, we thank You for the joy that You bring our hearts. We thank You for the wisdom in this book. And we just pray, Father, that as we consider these things and think them through, that we might walk with the wisdom of Christ more today than yesterday called out in this world. Father, call us out. May we be the ecclesia, be the church, called out in this world until, Lord, you call us home. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.